Welcome to episode one of the Page Two Podcast, and today we get to talk to none other than the great Rand Fishkin, co-founder of Moz and Spark Toro. And I had the great pleasure of talking to Rand about everything ranging from his time at Moz to the founding of Spark Toro to his new book, Lost and Founder, as well as to get his thoughts on a number of other subjects, including funding, venture capital, content marketing, personal branding, gender equality, and much more. So stay tuned for episode one of the Page Two Podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Stoops, and this is the Page Two Podcast. If you're looking for an SEO podcast where you get every trick in the book, this is not the podcast for you. In this podcast, we tell the personal stories of some of the industry's brightest minds. We discuss what life as an SEO is really like from an insider's perspective, swap stories about our greatest triumphs, failures, hopes, and frustrations, and we even go off script to talk about movies and pop culture. So sit back, relax, and enjoy some candid SEO conversations. Welcome to episode one of the Page Two Podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Stoops. You can find me at Jacob Stoops on Twitter or at my website at jacobstoops.com forward slash page two podcast. And today's conversation is with the great Rand Fishkin uh, of Spark Toro and formerly of uh, Moz. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about how this conversation came together. So I reached out to Rand earlier this summer. So this is not necessarily a current conversation. However, um, you know, Rand has been one of my idols um, in the industry. I've been in the industry for about 12 years and Rand uh, has been kind of one of the people at the forefront of the industry and really on the cutting edge with everything that he had done uh, at Moz. So I've always wanted to talk to him and uh, I was working this summer for a company called Startups.co and at Startups.co we were really focused on telling uh, entrepreneurial stories and really focused on helping startups and one of the things that we did was called uh, cover stories. Uh, in, in these cover stories we inter or we uh, discussed uh, a lot of different things with really well-known founders um, Elon Musk, David Heinmeier Hansen um, and, and many many more and I thought that with Rand's recent transition to Spark Toro and all of his experience at Moz that it would be a really natural progression to speak to him and to uh, allow him to tell his story. So uh, the way I went about that was because I, I, I know that you just you can't get anything for free was that I uh, we had created an article called the best startup books uh, and uh, that was driven surprise surprise by organic um, but we had created an article uh, to direct uh, entrepreneurs and potential startup founders to the best books to read about startups and with Rand recently launching his uh, book Lost in Founder I thought that that was uh, a potential great way 
uh, to introduce uh, introduce ourselves to him by placing a link on our page to his to his book. So uh, so we went ahead and did that. We featured his book on our already uh, pre-existing uh, startup books page. Uh, and I personally use that as my opportunity to reach out and say, hey, Rand, um, we linked to your book. Um, would you be interested in uh, coming on and doing an interview for a cover story? Uh, and uh, lo and behold, he, he did. Uh, and we had a great conversation this summer. Uh, and you can find that conversation both on the startups.co website and on my website. And what we're presenting today, and what we're what we're what we're talking about today, is kind of the transcript uh, and the audio from that conversation earlier this summer. Now, this won't be kind of the typical format that I plan to use in future episodes of the Page Two podcast. It's a little bit different and a little bit. Uh, more focused on the entrepreneurship and startup angle. That's not to say that we don't get into some really good marketing stuff. It's a really good conversation, but it'll be a little bit more far-reaching uh, than what we typically do, which will be centered on uh, telling SEO stories. So without further ado, uh, here is my interview with Rand Fishkin from this summer, and I really hope you enjoy later shortened to Moz way back in 2004 with your mom. Um, so can you tell us about the early days of uh, SEO Moz? Sure. So it started as a side project. It was just a blog that I built to mostly share my frustrations and experiences trying to learn SEO. We had um, accumulated a lot of debt as a kind of little mini web design consulting shop and we were trying to get clients. We couldn't afford to pay our SEO subcontractors. And so I had to learn the practice myself and try and do it. And had, um, yeah, had a difficult time. The industry was very secretive in those days. People held their practices really close to the vest. Um, that, that didn't sit well with me and I wanted to make something that would be transparent and open and accessible for everyone to learn SEO. And that kind of became my mission as the site got bigger, went into 2004, 2005. Um, and then we shut down the old business, uh, the consulting business, and started just taking SEO clients because the blog had sort of, sort of taken off. And I was getting invited to speak at a few events starting in, starting in 05. Uh, and those led to some clients, which then helped us dig our way out of debt. But it was, yeah, it was interesting times, definitely very, very different than, you know, what Moz became as a software company, right? It was just me and my mom and, and Matt, our, uh, our programmer, who um, later went on to found the Oatmeal, Matt Inman. Uh, just the three of us kind of making it work the best we could and um, living on tiny salaries next to nothing. Um, mm -hmm. I moved in with my girlfriend who became my wife, Geraldine. So it it was uh, different days. So, you know, I, I've, I've read, uh, and, and I'm a slow reader, so I haven't read the whole book, but I've read kind of the first couple of chapters and, and uh, anecdotally kind of know, know some of kind of the background stories of what you're, what you're talking about in terms of kind of where you started in the beginning and being kind of rough and maybe running into a few leg breakers here, here and there. And uh, so 
I guess at what point did you realize like things are going to be okay? Maybe this is going to be successful. Hmm. That was probably, probably 2007 when we launched, um, we launched our software. I mean, we didn't even think of it as a software launch, right? We basically had some tools that we built for ourselves. Matt said that our servers couldn't support it if we opened it up to everyone. So we built a little PayPal uh, paywall that you had to send us, PayPal us like 39 bucks a month to get access to it. And that subscription, I think six months in was doing as much revenue as our consulting business. And that was probably the time when I thought, oh, this might, this might really turn into something. Yeah. Light bulb. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned, and this is a little, little bit out of order. Um, you mentioned uh, kind of your, your blog taking, taking off. And I, I again, I, I read a little bit about it. Can you talk about like the process of making SEO at the time, which wasn't transparent and going through the process of, the, the blog taking off and kind of how the story about how it took off? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's no, there's not a lot of big like, oh, this made the blog huge, this one thing. You know, we had a few big successful pieces. One of them was the Beginner's Guide to SEO, yep, which many folks probably know. Uh, the other one was the search engine ranking factors or the Google ranking factors, mm -hmm. which again, sort of took off and many people have since, you know, copied and made great versions of. Um, the, I would say the, the big thing about the blog that made it successful was that we, I had time, you know, I started blogging in 2003 about SEO. It wasn't really until 2005 or 2006, you know, hundreds of blog posts in that I started getting a feel for what resonated with the audience and what was actually useful. Uh, what made sense to publish and not. And if you go back to, you know, you can still see in the archives those early, early days of, of SEO Moz. Uh, if you go back in those archives, you'll see that, you know, the posts are not particularly great or useful. They're not all that readable. The writing isn't terrific. The topics and headlines aren't great. But then it slowly, slowly, slowly gets better. And I think that's a big part of why so many content marketing campaigns fail is that you know, a company says, okay, now we're going to invest in content marketing. And they expect that six months in, they're going to have ROI. Nope. That's crazy. You know, I don't expect to have ROI uh, day one with any sort of inbound or, or organic marketing practice, right? Those are things that you build up slowly over a long period of time. You start to grow a brand. You start to get good at, you know, empathizing with your audience, uh, figuring out what they want, publishing good stuff getting better as a writer and a publisher, getting better as a promoter of that content, building up a network that'll help you promote that content. It's the flywheel, right? And it's very hard to get it started. And once it gets turning, it's relying on inertia to keep moving faster and faster. Yeah, I, uh, I always, uh, when I worked in a agency world, I spent um, 10, 10 or 11 years in, in agencies. That's what I would tell, tell my clients, like, right? It's like a, a 401k versus stocks you know stocks which stocks would be pay-per-click right so you can you can invest in stocks and it's a little bit risky and once you sell those stocks and turn it off it's it's gone whereas yeah. uh, if you keep investing in your 401k it's going to keep growing and growing and growing slowly you won't see the gains so some of them wanted the stocks and not the 401k but it, you I know think, it uh, is what it is <laughs> i think i mean in marketing you know in your analogy the reason that so many uh 
content marketing, long-term content marketing plays work so well is because those people have patience, because they've invested over a long time, and because very few people are willing to have that patience and that tolerance. There's not a lot of executive teams out there who will say, sure, take the first six to 12 months to just sort of learn. We don't expect that you're going to be great at it. And then, you know, next year, we'll start to see some returns from this. Unfortunately, very few people are willing to invest there, but that is a good thing for those of us who do because it means a lot less competition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so wait, oh, hold on, sorry, hit the wrong button here. Uh, in 2007, and again in 2012, 2016, you went through the process of uh, fundraising, and, and that's something that many, uh, many startups struggle with. So, you know, as best as you can, can you tell us kind of what was that like? And um, what might have been the impact, uh, not just on the business, but maybe even on, on the team kind of at the time? Yeah, so let's see. We raised our first round of funding in 2007. Uh, that was from Ignition Partners and Curious Office. It was $1.1 million, and they basically reached out to us. So it was less of a fundraising process and more of a, you know, I had a few coffees with these folks, and we sort of decided that working together sounded interesting, and there were some things that I wanted to do at Moz specifically to build our link index that required capital. Um, and I think that round was actually extremely positive. You know, it helped Moz grow. We essentially took that money, hired a few engineers, um, you know, put some, uh, built our link index in Amazon's cloud, uh, launched that, I think nine months, 10 months later, and by a year after we'd raised the investment, November of 2008, we were profitable again. So, I, you know, I think that was an extremely healthy cash infusion, um, really smart move, something I'm very glad that we did. And it clearly helped accelerate the business's growth and, you know, allowed us to build this technology that I think without it, we, we frankly wouldn't have been able to do. Um, the, you know, the downside, the only big downside is just that it comes with this requirement that you have, you know, a relatively extraordinary exit. And look, when you raise 1.1 million, you have a lot more freedom, right? That's not, that's not a huge amount of dollars. If you can return five or 10 million to the fund, I mean, it's not gonna make a huge difference to ignition, but they're certainly gonna be fine and comfortable with it. Um, and so that, that was growth that was absolutely possible. The, uh, later fundraising efforts, so in 2009, in 2010, and in 2011, I went through sort of over the course of, well, spring, summer, fall, uh, respectively, I tried to raise money uh, again, you know, going down to Silicon Valley, meeting with investors in New York and Boston, uh, and basically came up with nothing. Uh, I probably pitched, you know, a grand total of maybe 60 or 70 firms, wow. uh, partners over the course of that. Uh, those those three different efforts. One of them was particularly intense. You know, probably talked to I think something 40, 42, somewhere around there. Um, and yeah, it was a huge distraction, big time waster. Obviously, didn't get any funding uh, in those efforts, and didn't really find someone who's a great match for us either. Um, in twenty twelve, we did raise around with uh, Brad Feld at Foundry. Uh, we raised eighteen million dollars that round, and uh, I think felt amazing about that, you know, thought it felt like we were on top of the world when we closed that round. It was, you know, I'd been working so hard at it for so many years to try and make this happen and to find an investor who was a good match for us. And I, I think Brad and Foundry really were. Um, I think not 
not realizing the other components of that, which were, you know, we now felt this artificial sort of foolish pressure to invest that money, you know, quickly to find quick growth. Uh, and that, that, I think, is what sort of had a, a negative impact on the business because we became very unfocused. We were, you know, flailing around looking for anything. We bought a bunch of different companies, tried to launch a whole bunch of new products, uh, tried to make all these different things work. And in the meantime, weren't investing in our core SEO software and we're getting passed by other people in the market, right? Seen as we sort of by, I would say, 2015, 2016, we were seen as, you know, no longer the market leader in SEO software. And that was, uh, yeah, really hard. So you, you mentioned it a little bit. So um, you went through the process of acquiring a couple companies, Follower Wonk, and, uh, and Get Listed. So is there anything that you learned from both of those uh, acquisitions in, in particular? And in, in kind of how did, they, how did they end up working out? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the big lesson that I learned is unless you are the runaway leader in your field and can continue to heavily invest in, you know, being the best and you have sort of a, a department or division that's, you know, just running very, very smoothly, um, you probably should not try and take on new things, right? You should You should be great at the thing that, got you where you are, you should continue to invest in that. You better stay ahead of your market because uh, frankly, in B2B software, you know, switching costs aren't nearly as high as people think they are. And folks are very happy to move over to a new platform, a new piece of software, if it uh, does a better job than what you're doing, especially in SEO, which is so competitive, right? There's only a few positions in page one. So anything that gives you a boost, you're gonna go to. Um, so, uh, you know, Get Listed obviously turned into Moz Local, which is a a good product and a decent business, but um, I think it, I think that and Follower Wonk and Moz Content and investments, you know, we were trying to sell our API and then trying to build a sales team and um, do enterprise uh, and, um, you know, expanding our conferences to MozCon to MozCon Local. Uh, it, it was just too distracting, right? We were selling eight different things instead of one thing. Uh, and that, that was really more than our, our team, our platform, our audience could support. Okay. So we've, I feel like we've covered, covered a, a lot and, I, and I'd be remiss to talk about um, or to not talk about the fact that when you started, you did consulting, right? And then you eventually shifted to, uh, you know, a SaaS, uh, SaaS product in addition to kind of some of the stuff you just mentioned. So you can, can you talk a little bit about what went into the evolution of going from consulting to the, the SaaS model? Yeah, well, like I said, you know, it, it was very accidental for us, right? We had some tools, we didn't know if they'd be popular, we weren't intentionally trying to build them for an audience, we built them for ourselves and we launched them. Um, we were as shocked as anyone that they did so well. Uh, and I think it was probably only you know six, seven months in once we looked at the numbers and went, whoa, this is a lot of money coming in. And these investors started reaching out that we said, okay, I think we're on to something. We should probably learn something about the SaaS field. So it, it's very different from a, an intentional transition where you say, okay, I want to build a product business and how can I do that? Um, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're not quite that story. I think what made it work, however, what made it work really well is 
we already attracted the audience that was not our core customer for consulting, but was our core customer for our software product. And that, that was just by virtue of this kind of intersection of my passion for talking about SEO and the, the history of the blog there. Uh, I think that very few consulting companies are attracting a large audience of people who would buy software that they would build. Right? Most, most content marketing efforts are intentionally designed to attract your core customer, not some other person who might be a customer for something else that you might build in the future. And so I would certainly urge anyone who's thinking about making that transition, find a way to build that audience first. If you have a way to reach them, your costs of customer acquisition are much, much lower. Uh, if not, you, know, you could launch a great product, and I've seen tons of consulting services do this. Right, They launch a great product, for people they think are gonna be great customers, but they can't find and attract them and retain them affordably. You know, it just costs them so much money to get every new customer um, and they can't find enough of them. So bouncing around here a little bit, and I'm, I'm not actually sure which one came first. I probably have to go back and look. So a couple of things happened kind of in the later stages of, of your existence at Moz. So one, um, you went through uh, a, a round of layoffs, and, and then you also made the decision to hand over uh, the CEO duties to uh, Sarah Sarah Bird. So I'm just wondering, kind of, what went into that? You know, kind of, kind of both of those decisions, and um, you know, for people that are kind of maybe struggling themselves in terms of those types of decisions, running the business, managing the business, kind of, what advice would you give based on? how you approach those situations? Sure. So, Tough question, uh, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 totally, totally fair. So let's see, I, I would say um, with stepping down as CEO, uh, I, you know, I wrote about this in the book, but um, that decision was based almost entirely on my kind of mental and emotional state at the time. You know, I, um, I think I talked to some of my exec team members and they were like, hey, you're you know, whatever's going on with you, your, your depression, your anxiety, all this kind of stuff is, um, is really negatively impacting things. And I think I felt like the only option I had was, well, I should, I should put someone else in the CEO role. Maybe if I take the stress of that out, I'll, uh, I'll be able to get better. Um, I'm not sure that that was actually the only or right move. You know, I, I certainly could have stepped back in my duties and responsibilities and asked some other people to step up, but I, I just didn't think about it at the time. You know, I felt like I had to, uh, had to go all the way. So I had some conversations with our investors and I said, hey, I, I wanna make this transition. I wanna make Sarah CEO. Um, and they were comfortable with it. And so uh, we, I stepped down in 2014 um, and Sarah took over. And then, yeah, um, you know, my big goal as CEO at the end of 2013 and into early 2014 was let's return to profitability. Um, get profitable again so that, you know, we never have to raise any more money and we don't have a risk of layoffs and that kind of thing. And I think Sarah was much more venture, sort of classic venture model minded. And she was like, no, let's, we have a lot of money in the bank. Let's spend it. Let's try and grow this thing. Let's invest in a lot of these other products. Um, we're going to spin out these products from, from Moz Pro and, you know, make content and follower along and local all their own separate things. And um, uh, I think that that proved to be really, really challenging. And then, you know, a couple, what's that, two and a half years later, I suppose, um, we, you know, we met as a board and made the decision to do layoffs. We were just burning so much cash. 
Um, and you know, all of these businesses were making money and growing, but just not fast enough. Um, and so, yeah, we, we shut everything down except local and pro and uh, then basically um, focused on those businesses. And in, in 20, you know, 17, end of 2016 into 2017, I just had a lot of, um, a lot of conflict uh, with the CEO. And so in, um, yeah, in 2018, left the company sort of pseudo voluntarily. Yeah, so that I did want to ask about that. So in your kind of farewell post, it was um, to to directly quote it. You said on a scale of zero to ten, where zero is fired and escorted out of the building, and ten is left entirely of his own accord on wonderful terms. Your departure was was around a four. So like, I don't want to like you know get into like anything personal or not not public, but is there any anything you can share from that? I mean, just that you know, I, uh, the way I wrote that was the best that I can do to describe things, right? If a five is yeah. sort of right in the middle, this was a little on the not good side uh, of that. And um, yeah, certainly a very, I think it was a very, very painful, hard, ugly experience going through it. I have a lot of regret um, and you know some anger and resentment too, but at the same time, starting a new company is, um, has proven to be really, a really great thing, you know, and so far, you know, knock on wood, SparkTro has, has been kind of charmed. Um, found a great co-founder. We had a, we've had some great sort of early um, press and amplification and a lot of people who've checked it out and who follow the blog and who've signed up to get emails. And uh, we, we launched a little side project called SparkToro Trending, mm -hmm. which is kind of designed to be like a hacker news or a tech meme for marketing and that has gone very well, you know, a few hundred to a few thousand people visiting that every day already. Uh, that's, um, yeah, that's made me feel good about, I mean, that's a side project. It was made me feel good about the product that we're eventually going to be building for the company. So, yeah, some sad things around leaving Moz, but then some hopeful stuff around uh, the new company. Yeah, so the last thing about Moz, and I and I, uh, I I promise we can we can we can move on and and yeah. uh, you know put a put a put a wrap and talk about some some of the other stuff. But um, you know you you turned Moz into a really really successful company. If you look at you you know kind of the revenue you grew you know from two thousand eight from from uh, you know almost two million to almost forty uh, forty seven or forty eight million. Uh, what is it? Uh, almost ten years later. That's a that's a over the course of time, like a four hundred one k. You know, it grew steadily, maybe not as fast as you wanted it to, but that's wildly successful. So, what what are you most proud of with you know with respect to Moz? Um. Okay, so first off, I, yeah, I'll, I'll answer that question first. But I, I'm most proud of. The people we've helped, you know, Jake, when we started this call, you you mentioned, hey, you, Rand, and, and Moz have been really influential in my career and have helped me grow as an SEO and a web marketer. That's what I'm most proud of. I'm most proud of being able to help so many people learn this practice that was so hard to learn um, when I was getting into this field. That, uh, that made me feel like I really accomplished something positive with the company. Uh, the... As the assertion that Moz is very successful, I think, is fundamentally flawed, though. 
So Moz has many characteristics of a successful company and would absolutely be considered wildly successful if it were privately held um, uh, with no institutional investors is what I mean. Once you take institutional investors, you are only considered, you know, success becomes a very clear line of demarcation, right? There's not successful over here and there's successful over here and not successful is you have not returned you know, capital to the investors in the quantity that they need to make their fund dynamics work. And over here is you've done that, right? You've returned whatever it is, depending on the fund size and how long it takes and how much money, three to 10 to 50 X, uh, the amount that was invested. And Moz, you know, I mean, maybe hopefully will over a 10 to 15 year lifespan potentially return the probably on the lower end of that three to five X, if we're lucky, right? If Moz does well and continues to grow and you know, manages to, to uh, sort of survive this comp competitive field that it's in um, and has a successful acquisition or, or you know, maybe an IPO a long time from now, uh, it's possible. But I would say that is still a very risky bet that, that's a, that's actually really a, you know a, a really good kind of point of clarification because folks like me look at it from the out from the outside and make some assumptions but kind yeah. of what the reality is is much much different um, much different it seems like yeah I, I mean I think that the people who say oh Moses is a wildly successful company forget that it it needs to return this capital right and that you know it's not like founders and employees make a lot of money or you know make you know, more than just normal salaries, in fact, probably lower than, than most market salaries, right, than what they make at Amazon um, or Google or something, because they, you know, they hope that their stock options will someday be worth something, but that's all resting on, you know, this transaction, hopeful transaction in some future time frame. And Moz has only had one serious acquisition offer uh, in early 2007, that, uh, 2011, sorry, that would have been extraordinary, but I, I turned it down. Um, I thought it wasn't for enough money at the time. And I think I was greedy and cocky um, and young and foolish. And um, yeah, that, uh, that ended up probably being a huge mistake. So hindsight's yeah. 2020, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just hope, I mean, this is, this is why the book exists, right? Lost and Founder is out there so that if you are starting a company or you're joining an early stage company or you're, you know, you're thinking about doing some of these projects or product that you can, you will make mistakes. You will make terrible, dumb, stupid mistakes that you will beat yourself up for. I guarantee it. But you don't have to make exactly the same ones that I did. Yeah. So assuming somebody has not yet, everybody maybe not everybody, but at least everybody in the SEO space probably has heard about the book, Lost and Founder. So assuming that you're maybe not in the digital marketing space, but you're, you're, you know, you're a startup founder, an entrepreneur, or looking to become one, if you pick up Lost and Founder, what should you expect to get out of it? I mean, I think the two biggest things are um, from people who, who read it and sort of, you know, had the experience and have whatever, tweeted about it or, or shared their experience from reading it, that the two biggest things seem to be, I feel less alone. I feel like someone else, oh, this other person who, you know, is relatively high profile or went through these things, their experience is similar to my own. Um, and uh, I think that is 
a really powerful thing to not feel alone, to feel like everyone makes these mistakes, everyone goes through these hard times, no one has a you know perfectly blessed experience. Um, I think the other thing is that there's just a lot of individual lessons that resonate with people. And it's always different, right? For some people, it's the chapters on hiring and management and how to build a great team. For some people, it's on you know building values and culture. Uh, for some people, it's the marketing chapters, right? The, the flywheel versus the growth hack kind of stuff. For other people, um, you know, it's been the services and product-based business or how you know how to build a a network in your early years when you may not have one. Um, and for some folks, it's you know some of the later chapters around focus and layoffs and depression. Um, so I, the book is not about one thing. And so I think that everyone has something different that resonates with them strongly. And that's been kind of, yeah, kind of cool to see too. Excellent, yeah, I've read, um, like I said, I'm about a third of the way through and um, you know, some of the, especially some of the early material, there are kind of a few kind of funny anecdotal stories that, that you go through, um, especially the, the one with the debt collector. Um, although I'm sure that that wasn't so great for you, but uh, it's you know, probably funny to, to, to look back on it. But uh, yeah, just the, the stuff that, that you went through and um, that other founders might go through kind of going all the way through the process for me was, was pretty enlightening. Um, and definitely in line with, um, you know, what we hear all the time on this side, wh uh, whether it be um, from founders who are kind of sharing their experiences with us or our own founders who are kind of, you know, veterans of, of, of many, many businesses for, for many, many years themselves. So, um, you know, I'm just the lowly marketing guy, but I kind of hear, you know, hear a lot of that. And a lot of it, I think, is, is definitely going to um, resonate with anybody that picks the book up for sure. Um, Spark Toro. So you kind of touched on Spark Toro a little bit. So that's your that's your your new company. You just uh, just closed uh, very recently. One point three million in angel investments. Seventy five percent close rate on uh, your email. Um, can you talk a little bit about Spark Toro? Sure. Yeah. So one of the problems that I saw very often in my career at Moz was for folks who didn't already have a lot of search volume for the products or services they were offering. Um, they needed other ways to do their marketing other than search, right? Um, SEO is not going to help you if no one's searching for what you are selling. You have to go out to your market and try and get in front of them and reach them. And when I observed people doing that practice, especially the last you know, six, 12 months, as I was thinking about this problem more heavily, uh, and my next adventure, the, the issue that I saw is folks would say, okay, well, I need to reach this particular market. Who are the people and what are the publications and the, you know, the, the podcast, the news media, the uh, websites that these people visit, the blogs that they read, the YouTube channels they subscribe to, the people they follow on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all that and LinkedIn. Um, and that practice is totally manual totally manual, which is ridiculous. You know, people would go to Google and then they'd search for their topic and they'd click a bunch of things and they'd find a bunch of links, they'd put them all into a spreadsheet and they'd go to Twitter and search around there and they'd look for people with high follower accounts. They'd go to LinkedIn and do the same thing and they'd go to YouTube and do the same thing and they'd go to Instagram and try and do it, but Instagram search kind of sucks and so they just have to follow hashtags. And, 
oh my God, are you kidding me? That is ridiculous. I mean, how could it be? It looked like SEO in 2002 or 2003, right? When there was no tools to do this stuff. And so people were like, yep, every day I go to Google and I search and then I put the rank in, you know, because there's no rank tracking system. And, you know, then I try and figure out what the SERP looked like. I take a screenshot every week and send it to my client. Oh my gosh, you know, that kind of stuff. That's exactly what this process looked like to me. And, and I thought, okay, I can build, we can build software that can help with this, where you enter the audience you want to reach or the topic you're targeting, and we can go out and, and get great data for you about who are the people in that field and what do they pay attention to and follow and amplify and listen to across all these different channels and sources so that you can build this list of here are the publications or people that influence my audience uh, and then go do your marketing, whether that's you know, advertising or organic marketing or going to their events or trying to do a you know, guest editorial piece, whatever it is. So you um, made the decision to make SparkToro's funding documents public, which um, as I understand it is not a normal thing. Uh, so so what, what went into that? Yeah. Um, so with SparkToro, we raised a very unusual time around, you know, I, I, I think you can gather from our conversation that I have some frustrations with the venture model, right? And the binary outcome success requirements. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to hamstring SparkToro in that way. I, I, I believe that there's a big market here. I think that SparkToro could be a business that's as big as, as Moz is or even bigger. But what if that's not the case? What if I find that the market really taps out in the, you know, three to $10 million in revenue per year range and growing after that is really hard? Well, what if SparkToro has, you know, five or six employees and is doing five or six million dollars in revenue and has great margins, but it's not getting, you know, super high growth? That still could be an extraordinarily successful company if only you structured the investment in the right way, right? And so the way SparkToro works is that rather than saying, hey, investors, you only ever make money if we have a huge exit, it says, you make money if we have that huge exit, just like you would with any other investment. But you can also make a lot of money if SparkToro is profitable. And in any year when we're you know, profitable, we can sort of choose to reinvest that, those dollars into growth. Or if we don't see a ton of growth opportunity with just raw dollars, we can say, we're going to pay out dividends. And basically our salaries, mine and my co-founders, uh, as well as our ability to benefit from SparkToro's profitability is limited until we pay back our investors you know, one, one X, basically the, the 1.3 million that they've put in. And then after that, everyone participates uh, pro rata in the, the profitable growth of the company. So any profits are spent out to everyone. So, you know, SparkToro makes a uh, million dollars in profit and whatever, a hundred and, uh, you know, a couple hundred thousand of that goes to uh, investors. Well, First, the 1.1 million goes back to them. Then a couple hundred thousand goes to investors. And so over the course of 10 years, this company could return many multiples of your capital uh, every year as opposed to only ever, you know, fingers crossed, I hope they sell one day. So, but I guess my question is why the, why the transparency? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, because... I hate that the venture model is the only one, right? It, it, it's not, 
it's not the only one, but even all the angel documents that you'll see out there uh, for fundraising, all of the open source documents, they're all designed to, you know, the seed round stuff, uh, the convertible notes, they're all designed to price when you do the venture round, right? And so success for many, many angel investors is do the companies that I invest in, are they able to raise venture? Um, and so this company, SparkToro, I don't want to raise venture. I know there's lots and lots of companies and entrepreneurs who think the same way that I do. In fact, almost all of the investors that I raised from think, hey, there's another way here. There should be another way to do this. Um, and that's exactly what you know, my goal is behind open sourcing these docs is that other people will take a look at the documents and say, hey, I don't have to pay you know, a lawyer $10,000, $15,000 to come up with a structure. Here's a structure that a bunch of you know, notable investors have already said they believe in and this company has done it. And so I can use a system like this uh, to structure my investment round and, and hopefully, yeah, hopefully it saves a lot of people a lot of money and time and effort. And hopefully it also gets a few people thinking about how they want to build their businesses differently. Excellent. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. I, I think trans transparency, um, I mean, you seem to be transparent in, in many of the, many of the things you do. And I, I think that, um, you know, that's definitely something from an industry standpoint that, that I, I tend to agree with the philosophy. It may, may be helpful and may help break down, break down walls for, um, for other folks facing the same, same problems. Um, couple, couple more questions. And then I, you know, cause I, I want to be respectful of your, of your time. Um, I know we're, we're running over a little bit. Um, last question on Spark Toro, and, and this one's more specific to how did you find your co-founder and any advice from, from you in terms of like what synergies, if, if somebody is, is kind of a sole proprietor that the, you know, bootstrapping or, or, you know, kind of going it alone, what, did you look for in a co-founder and what made Casey Henry uh, a good fit for you? Yeah. I mean, one thing certainly was someone who um, shared my, my values and the way that I like to work. So Casey and I are both passionate about this, you know, alternative form of fundraising and, and building a company with profitable growth. Um, we both like small companies, companies that don't need to be, you know, hundreds of people. I think we both we both like things, you know, sort of 50 people and under. Uh, we both wanted to build a remote work culture. So have people who are able to work from home and be flexible. And, um, you know, Casey's kind of a, um, a stay-at-home dad or, you know, a, a, he's the um, primary parent at home mm -hmm. for his family for a lot of, um, for a lot of stuff. And I think enabling that kind of thing is something we're both passionate about. Uh, and we also have a, a lot of beliefs about, you know, a lot of the same beliefs around what makes for a great employee, what makes for a good team, um, and what doesn't. And then I think uh, Casey is also someone who bolsters my weaknesses. You know, Casey is very strong on the technical side. He's sort of a, you know, very talented full stack engineer. Uh, has done lots of both front end and back end work, which means that we don't have to contract a lot of that stuff. And he's, you know, he can manage everything from the WordPress blog to the actual crawling of the data and building of the databases for uh, the system that we want to build. Um, and, you know, and I can continue to do sort of my uh, product design and, uh, and product marketing as well as, you know, being a little bit the face of the company and 
um, managing a lot of those sides. So we, we complemented each other well on the skills side, but also on the values and beliefs side. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 100% important um, that, you, that you guys uh, are able to kind of fill fill each other's gaps, right? Uh, yeah. Bolster each other. Um, personal branding. So this is, um, this is definitely something that, at least in my opinion, your personal brand, you've You've been the face of now now two companies, maybe even an in, in industry or two between digital marketing and 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 SEO. Um, how important is personal branding to 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 growing a business in terms of like, do you have to have a, a well known personal brand in order to grow a business, or can you grow a business while staying behind the scenes and not as much in public? Yeah, absolutely. No, no. I I mean, I think personal branding is something that came because I I like writing and sharing and I happen to be good at it, but there's you know a million ways to build a business and not need to be that personal face. So I, I certainly wouldn't encourage anyone who doesn't want to be uh, to do it. It's um, only as valuable and you know useful as you have passion for it. Um, and I you know I think I'm I'm Let's see, I'm not a reluctant personal brand, but I, it's not something I intentionally invest in, right? I don't try and be like, um, oh, well, is this going to be good for the, the brand of Rand? Um, I don't think I've ever particularly thought that way. Uh, I think it, it just happens to be the case that, what, that the way I do think, which is, is this something that will be useful to lots of people and where I, I can create it and share it or amplify it? Um, and that happens to attract also, you know, um, a reasonable degree of of following. But yeah, I'm sort of weird. I'm like a <laughs> I'm a pseudo introvert where I, I really like to be alone, <laughs> and that's kind of where I get uh, a lot of my energy from. But then, you know, I can go on stage and do great. It's um, it's like after I get off stage that I that I don't uh, I'm not as good. Yeah, I I, um, I totally get that. I'm a definitely very shy, introverted person, which I think also has to do with not wanting to go to and or speak at uh, speak at conferences. Despite the fact that I've got a lot of a lot of experience, uh, brings me a lot of anxiety. But then when you finally push me up there, I can do okay. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know. I understand. I'm I'm like I'm fine on the stage. It's like when you get off stage and then you're meeting tons of new people. And then, you know, there's people who's like, oh, yeah, we met like six years ago at this event. Oh, no, I forgot. I'm terrible. You know, that, um, I have a really tough time with that. Yeah, I definitely am right there with you. Um, last question, uh, and this is de definitely related, definitely off on a tangent. So um, just in following you, I know that you've been a, a, a huge advocate for women's rights, equality in the workplace. Um, Definitely, with kind of today's political climate, a lot of uh, a lot of talk, uh, you know, kind of around uh, around this um, between the the Me Too movement and everything else else going on. So, kind of, can you speak a little bit a little bit to that, especially as it relates to somebody running a business and and kind of factoring those things in as they grow their team? Sure. I mean, I think that you know the statistics are obvious and clear, right, that, that gender diverse teams dramatically outperform uh, non-gender diverse teams. And uh, I think, you know, Casey, Casey knows that I, um, 
attempted to recruit several women to co-found uh, Spark Toro with me, but um, I, I think that, that that's going to be something that obviously we try and invest in very early on as well. But uh, the other thing, besides just the you know statistical benefit, I think that um, one thing that I do worry about is I worry that many men, um, myself included, for a long time, I never thought about how my experiences, my success were sort of uh, so dependent on my gender. Like, give you an example, right? I, I have never had to think twice about, hey, should I go to this conference that's in this city where I won't know anyone? And um, can I go out drinking with all of these guys after the talk? And what am I wearing? And how will they treat me? And oh, this guy invited me to his room to chat, you know, to chat more about like this potential partnership. Could that mean anything but let's chat about a potential partnership? Um, I've never had to think about that. And, and women that I talk to, like there is constantly that voice in their head that's like, oh man, what is this going to be like? And, and just that mm -hmm. psychological, even if nothing bad actually happens, which something bad almost always has happened to almost every woman I've talked to. Like there's, there's no one who has like, Oh no, it's always been great for me. There's always like, yeah, a few times here, there was this or that. Yeah. But even just the, the pressure of having to think about that every time. Investors, most of the investors that I met, right? The, the, the venture capitalists and the folks who, um, you know, who I pitched, they were connected to me through CEOs that I'd often meet through social events, through you know, conferences and events, the, the, that kind of stuff, right? I'd go down to Silicon Valley, I'd speak at a comp their company, and then we'd like, you know, go out for dinner that night, and then we'd maybe end up like back at somebody's apartment drinking, and no problem, right? I didn't have to think twice about it. Mm -hmm. And you know, you read books like uh, like Emily Chang's Brotopia, and you see just the the insidious nature of of this stuff. And as a guy, you just don't have to think about it. So of course you think it's easy. Of course you think it's equitable because for you, it seems simple. Um, and I think that. You know, we, we, especially those of us who are in marketing, right? Our whole job is to have empathy for our audience, right? Empathy for other people. We can put ourselves in their shoes so we can understand their behaviors and, you know, their buying habits and, and, and what they act like and what they do. Um, and I, I think, you know, for men, we need to be able to do that for women, for, you know, pe for, for people who are white. We need to be able to do that for people of color, for people who are, you know, fully abled. We need to be able to do that for people who are not fully abled, for people who are young. We need to be able to do that for people who are old, right? So um, I think that, that that's just something that fundamentally comes with the territory of being a human being. And if it, you know, if you're not behind that, well, we're not friends. <laughs> you're not, you're not cool. Yeah, right. right. Okay, like you're out. Yeah, no, I um, absolutely, uh, definitely, definitely agree. Um, I've never had to, to worry about that. In fact, uh, one of the things that I, I think I, I've noticed working in the digital marketing space, uh, especially with, with women on the digital marketing teams, constantly feeling the mansplained too, uh, even oh, by their right. own. And I'm like, wait a minute, two years ago, I didn't know that, that mansplaining was a real thing. Yeah. And then I'm like, wait a minute, have I ever done that to somebody? If so, I'm mortified. <laughs> Right, mortified. Right. So, yeah, Gosh. yeah, and I feel like I mean that's it's one of those uh, it's one of those crappy things where you know I, I think even even when your intentions are good, sometimes you 
you know, due to historical gender dynamics, right? We just yeah. fall into these patterns. And, and so I think being, you know, being aware of it, that's the wonderful thing about all of this is that, that um, I think you and I and the generations to come, right? They're aware of it. They're, people are talking about it. We know what it is. It's entered the lexicon. Um, and so I think that is, that is the first step to making a change. You have to talk about it. You have to know about it. So hopefully there's progress. So that was my interview with Rand Fishkin, and if you noticed that it got cut off at the end, uh, that's because we went a little bit over time and Rand had a hard stop, so he had to jump off pretty quickly, but he was gracious enough. Um, we had only committed to 30 minutes, and he stayed on for almost an hour. Um, it was an awesome, awesome conversation, and I was so appreciative to be able to talk to uh, one of the people in the industry that I really respect. Uh, uh, more so than almost anybody. So it was really great to, uh, to speak to him. Uh, and I think the thing that surprised me most was that in his opinion, um, honestly, he didn't feel like he was as, as successful as maybe somebody looking from the outside in um, would, would, uh, would think. And, uh, you know, I, I, was, I came away really um, really shocked and really surprised by that. Um, and he's an incredibly humble guy. And it's not to say that he wasn't successful, but it's to say that uh, if you're looking at it from the outside in, maybe you're not necessarily considering all of the factors that somebody uh, in the SEO space or in the entrepreneurial space uh, would be looking at. Uh, so success is uh, it's definitely relative. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously Moz has become a very successful company, but, uh, there's definitely some, uh, some, some regrets, uh, you know, that, that he has experienced, uh, you know, as he's kind of left that company behind. Um, but I, 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 I think that he learned, um, learned a lot in his time, um, and, uh, you know, what he's been able to do in the industry, uh, with Moz, uh, he had a graceful departure. And he's had a really good start to his new company, uh, Spark Toro, with a lot of buzz. So uh, we wish him well. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll hear from him many, many, many times. He's super present, uh, you know, in the industry and in the space. And I don't think that he's done uh, with SEO in general. Um, so I'm sure that we'll continue to hear his opinions uh, about what's going on. Uh, but yeah. So definitely appreciate the listen. If you've listened this long, uh, really appreciate it. And uh, episode two coming soon. Thank you. Thank you for watching the Page 2 Podcast. If you like this podcast, you can support this show by tapping the link in this episode's description or visit anchor.fm forward slash page 2 podcast to become a monthly supporter. That's anchor.fm forward slash page, the number two, podcast. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and more. Follow me on Twitter at Jacob Stoops. Thanks again, everybody, and see you next episode.